0: Feels really weird to be up here, just so you guys know. We don't have a pulpit that goes up this side, Holy Trinity. Uh, yeah, as Dave said, my name is Joel Miles. I am one of the pastors at Holy Trinity Church. It's my great privilege to be here this morning. Uh, we love coming to Presbyterian Church. We're really grateful for you guys. We pray for you often. And I feel extremely, uh, privileged, a little bit intimidated. And again, this pulpit doesn't help with the intimidation factor, but I feel, uh, very privileged to be here this morning. I want to read the scripture passage right away uh, at the beginning um, of our text. It it is a, if you've been in the church for a long time, it's probably a well-known passage. It's a pretty profound pronouncement that Jesus has here in the Sermon on the Mount. And in many ways, it's kind of the, it's almost like the thesis statement of the sermon. So it's a little bit odd that they gave it to me since I'm not one of your pastors. But I want to read from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. This can be found on page 810 in the Pew Bibles, or generally speaking, if you have an ESV, this is normally the page it would be on. I know that because one of our pastor's fathers owns the publisher, so I get to know the page numbers quite well for the ESV. But this is Matthew 5:17 through 20, so hear God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, let me pray, and then let's dive in. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for the people that you have formed, not just by grace, but also called to live in that grace for you. Lord, I pray that today you graciously would equip us to do that. I I pray right now, Lord, that this would not be me who speaks, but it would be your Holy Spirit, that you graciously would shape each one of us to know you by looking at these words, by understanding what your Son said. And I ask, God, that our righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees so that we might represent you well, all the while resting in what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, may you be known, may you be seen. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as Dave pointed out, I am Canadian. Uh, So one of the things you may notice throughout this sermon is my very—it's pretty slight now—a very slight Canadian accent may come out. It wasn't intentional, but that isn't out right there. So when I say words like out, about, shout, mouse—that's a favorite one for Americans—or the the interchangeable one is sorry or sorry. I go back and forth. I don't have to think about that one. It kind of goes back and forth, but it's hard for me to say out without really thinking about it a lot. So the accent kind of comes up. But the reason why I go back and forth a little bit is because while I was born and raised in Canada, when I was 18 years old, I moved to the States. And in particular, I moved to Chicago. And I'm actually now an American citizen. Okay, so I've got I've two citizenships. So about 3 years ago, uh, actually a week before Trump was elected, I became a citizen. And what this has often caused me to do, being Canadian, being American, is to have a little bit of an identity crisis. Because I can I be like, okay, am, am I more, am I more American now, than Canadian, or am I still more Canadian than I am American? I can actually wrestle with this, and it can. I'm kind of an emotional person, so it can at times be a little bit emotional for me. So basically, all of my adult life, I've been here. I've been in the states, which are that's obviously very formative years. But all my foundational years were spent in the great country of Canada. So I often wrestle with, which one am I more of now? Am I more Canadian or more American? One of the interesting things that has happened to me, as I've wrestled with this throughout the years, because again, at times it's been a bit of a crisis, a bit of an emotional thing for me. As a Canadian, you kind of feel like it's bad if you become more American, which maybe that's offensive, but there it is. Yeah, you kind of feel like, okay, I want to be Canadian. What's happened to me is what I've talked to my mother about, this. actually my parents' Uh, are here today. They kind of are, thank God, just in town today, so they got to see me here. But as I've talked to my mom about this, my mom will almost get upset with me, and she'll say, Joel, you are Canadian. You are. You were born here. Almost like she's, like, assuring me of this. Like, be assured, my son, this is your identity. That can't be changed, which, of course, is true. I am Canadian, so my identity crisis should be eased by the fact that I was born there. That can't really be changed. Even though I technically renounced it when I became an American, Canada doesn't really care about that. So it's true. I am Canadian. So I should rest assured in that. And yet, I think that we would all agree that being Canadian, just like being American, is not just about having your citizenship from that country. It comes with more than that. There's a kind of call upon your life to embody a specific way of life. So a lot of times, especially I feel like in America right now, people will do something and let's say, that's not very American. You're not being an American. That actually being a citizen of a country comes with a call to embody a specific way of life. And that's actually what I want to talk to you about this morning. Now, of course, not about being Canadian versus American, but actually being a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, We can tend to come to Christ with kind of two different false views. On the one hand, we can come to Jesus thinking it can happen really subtly. It might not even be in our head, but we can subtly start to act as if our actions, our ethics, are what create our identity with Jesus. It actually creates the forming, creates the salvation that I have through what I do. We can come to Jesus that kind of way, or we can do the opposite which is that we can think that because we've been saved by Jesus, forgiven by him, there's no longer a call to embody a specific way of life. But you see, as we continue in this series today on this great Sermon on the Mount and come to this text, what we are seeing is Jesus make this profound statement that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. But what I hope to show you that means is that Jesus... In fulfillment of what God has always desired, Jesus has come to form a people, to graciously give people a new identity as the blessed ones of God, as the representatives of heaven, as the light of the world, the salt of the earth. That is our identity, and we should rest in that. But that that identity brings with it a call to embody a specific way of life. That it's both. That yes, it's by grace. And yes, there is a call, and that's what I want to show you, as you. Look at this text. I want to show you that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, which means that He graciously forms us as a people who are called to embody the way of Christ. Okay, that's what I want to show you. Now, the way I'm mean going to do that is basically by looking at this, making two different points. So, the first point is just a people graciously formed. Okay, and I'm, like, I'm going to really only look at verse 17 for that. And the second point is a life responsively lived. Okay, so life living in response to that gracious action. So a people graciously formed, and then a life responsively lived. So this first point, people graciously formed. Please look with me again at verse 17. It's what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, now what I think is important to point out right away, especially because we're in a series here on the Sermon on the Mount, is that with these words, Jesus is introducing a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. And really one that will go all the way until chapter 7, verse 12, where once again, Jesus brings up the Law and the Prophets. Okay, the kind of the bookends that hold the central part of the sermon together. Okay, So this is a new section of the sermon. But that does not mean that it's not intricately linked to what you guys have been looking at the past couple of weeks. And actually, that, that's pretty important to notice Because one of the questions we need to ask when looking at these words is why does Jesus say this? And why here? Why does Jesus make this remarkable proclamation at this point? And how does it connect to what he's saying? How does it flow out of the words that he has already said? Because what he is declaring here is that with his coming, with the coming of Jesus Christ into our world, does not come, The abolition of the law and the prophets, which really refers to the entire Old Testament, okay? All the writings that came before Jesus, that phrase, the law and the prophets, it's almost like a technical phrase that was often used to depict everything that comes before. But you could also say that it's like the law as interpreted by the prophets. All that God desired, all that he had put down to paper, to word, before Jesus Christ comes, with Jesus coming, those things are not put aside, but rather they're fulfilled. They are completed. All the stories, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the commands are not abolished in Jesus. Rather, they are fulfilled. They find their completion. They find their climax. Okay, That's what Jesus is proclaiming. I want to ask why. Why is he saying this? And why here? And how does it connect to what comes before well, I want us to think about what Dan and Dave have showed us the last couple of weeks when looking at the beginning parts of the Sermon on the Mount, leading up to this point. Because if you remember, when Dan began this series, he showed you how the sermon begins with Jesus giving these kind of famous blessing statements, the Beatitudes. Okay, and one of the things he helpfully pointed out, and I think this is, this is so important to actually notice this, and I think... I was listening to Dan's sermon online. I think this was the first sermon I'd ever heard where a a pastor had actually pointed this out. That Dan explained that Jesus is not giving commands with these blessing statements. Okay, when he makes these blessing statements, they are not commands. Rather, they're statements of being. They are declarations of God's grace coming upon people to give them a new identity. So, the sermon begins with Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth and so on. And it's important to know in the book of Matthew, blessed, that word is, is, it's basically a technical word for like being saved, being in. Okay. So it's used a couple of times. The two most significant times are when Peter declares Jesus' identity, says you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds saying, blessed are you. Simon son of Jonah for flesh and blood is not revealed to you but my father in heaven and it happens again in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about him returning and separating the sheep and the goats the goats are cursed the sheep are blessed and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven so blessed is kind of this technical word for being saved and so when Jesus says this they are statements of truth and Dan pointed that out this is not commands these are statements about the kind of people that God saves There are thus radical statements about the grace of God upon those who realize that they need God. Upon those who look at the world and mourn knowing that this is not right and we need God to intervene. Who look at themselves and know, I am not right and I need God to intervene. Yet those who are poor in spirit who know they need God's help, those who mourn the state of our world, those who hunger and thirst for this world to be righteous, to be just, those who are willing to pursue justice and righteousness even at their own expense, they are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is their identity. That's where the sermon begins. With these shocking statements, which are shocking, not just because they are completely different to what our world and culture is shaping us to believe, but also because they are statements of God's grace forming a new people. You want to know who's really blessed? Who are my people? Those who know they need it. In fact, Jesus goes on, and this is what Dave talked about last week, Jesus goes on to say, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And that proclamation, that statement comes before they've done anything. I mean, he's not saying, become the light of the world. Go become the salt of the earth. He actually saying you are. God is graciously actually giving you that identity. We are the light of the world. Therefore, act like it. That's what Jesus is saying We up to this point. But let's think about that. These those statements would cause certain questions to arise in the people listening, such as, well, what about the law? What about the people of God as formed by God in the Old Testament? What about Israel? Isn't it those who obey the law, who become blessed? Isn't it those who actually listen to the law and obey it, who are the light of the world? Isn't it those who have been chosen by God as his people and who follow his rules and regulations as put down in the law and the prophets, who get God's blessing upon them and become the salt of the earth? Because you see, the people of Jesus' day would have completely thought that it is those who are obeying the rules and the regulations of God's law who are blessed. It's not those who are desperate for God's help, but those who are strong enough to follow the rituals and the commands. Those are the ones who have God's blessing upon them. So they would be thinking, what are you saying? Are you doing away with the law and the prophets by speaking of this gracious action of God to bless those who know that they need help? You say, this is why Jesus' words here in verse 17 are so significant, even just in the flow of the narrative, or the flow of the sermon. Because he is correcting this thought that could be slipping into the minds of the people in front of him. saying, no, I'm not relaxing the law and the prophets. But we need to get what that means. Because what that means, at least in part, is that when Jesus came and graciously formed the people, when he gave grace and forgiveness to actually gather us together, he was not doing something different or new than what the law and the prophets were always about. In other words, he's not just correcting them here by saying, don't think this means you don't have to live a really righteous life. He's also correcting them by saying, don't think that when I talk about mercy and the grace of God forming a people, Don't think that when I offer you forgiveness that I'm doing something opposed to the Law and the Prophets. Rather, I am doing what the Law and the Prophets were always striving for. The Law and the Prophets, God throughout history, was always about our identity preceding the call to embody a way of life. So essentially he's saying, no, this grace of God does not negate the Law of the Prophets. For I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but rather to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion. So I'll have to grasp this. Because again, the people who heard what Jesus had just said would be thinking, Wait, what about God's law? You can't offer this kind of grace without negating the law. But you see, Jesus is actually saying, no, I'm the fulfillment of the law. That's what I just said about God's grace being for those who need it. God's blessing for those who recognize their need for God. God's gracious forming of a people preceding God's call to live a righteous life is not separate or different or an abolition of the law. Rather, it's what it was always about. This is what God always desired to take place. You see, it's so significant then. there's a lot of times we can pit God's law against God's grace. As if they're competing things. But that's just a misunderstanding of how God has always worked. I mean, just just think about when is God's law actually given in the Old Testament? When does God give kind of specific commands to follow? So a lot of times, specifically with kind of in our specific tradition of Christianity, we would say there's two different times that God did this in history leading up to this point. The first is in the Garden of Eden. Okay, when God gave Adam and Eve the command to not eat from the tree. You eat from any tree, don't eat from this one. Okay, that's the first time. And the second time is in the wilderness when the people are at Mount Sinai. But think about that. Because that means that both times leading up to this point that God gives a command or a law to follow, it is after God has graciously formed or saved his people. I mean, it isn't like Adam and Eve deserved to be created they didn't do something in his mind and he's like oh i guess i need to create you now or something like that no god graciously created them and in the context of that gracious act gave them a law to fulfill so that they could embody what they were formed to do gave them a law to follow so they could embody being his image bearers it's after he's graciously formed them which is basically the same thing with israel God graciously, mercifully saves Israel out of slavery, rescues them from Egypt, has mercy upon a people that was desperately crying out for it. And then after he has saved them, he then gives them the law to follow. And he prefaces it. I mean, you think about how do the Ten Commandments begin? How do, I mean, this happens all the time throughout the commandments. God constantly is saying, I am the Lord your God who saved you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, live this way. I am the Lord your God. Therefore embody it this way. Grace precedes the call. Our identity precedes the ethic. And even the purpose of the law. When you even look at it. It was to teach and shape Israel to be a people who would live in light of that constantly. It's why God always says that. Which is why there also to be a people who was just. Who would be righteous. Who would care for the sojourner, For the poor and the downcast in the midst. That would live before God in a way that honored him and the salvation he had already given to them. And when they sinned. They were to seek forgiveness from God. Why? Because the law was about forming a people that constantly depended on mercy and grace and the identity that had been given to them. It was, in other words, a law that was given to show the people how to love the Lord, how to serve their neighbor, all the while being dependent on God's identity he had given to them. It's like God is shouting what my mother said to us, to me. You are my person. You are saved by me. I have saved you. Therefore, live this way. This, the law was not in any way opposed to mercy, opposed to grace, but was given because of mercy and grace. was meant to foster mercy and grace and to form a people that depended on mercy and grace. You see, this misunderstanding of the law was one of the main problems that Jesus was dealing with during his lifetime. He was dealing with a people that didn't see that obedience to the law or rules and regulations wasn't of a response to God's mercy. That was meant to foster a dependence on God. Rather, they were a people who used the law as a means of proving their worthiness to God. They were people that saw their obedience to the law as the means of attaining the blessing of God. So that it wasn't those who looked to God's mercy who were the blessed ones. But rather those who by their own strength, could follow God's rules and regulations that were the blessings. And so Jesus, after declaring that those who are desperate for me, they are the blessed ones, those who are dependent on me and not on themselves, they are the blessed ones, calls out, and those words fulfill what God has always desired. This is what God has always longed for. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He has always, God has always been about a people that rested in the grace of God that knew that they needed mercy. You see, I think this is so important for us to hear today as well. Because the reality is, even though we probably wouldn't phrase it the same way that people would in Jesus' day, it's very easy and common for us to view God the exact same way. And I think often we don't really even recognize it. But man, it is so easy just to kind of slip into approaching God as if our actions... Are the basis of our standing before Him rather than a response to the grace that He has given to us. Again, I really think this can happen with almost anything because, like, okay, whenever, whenever we allow something we have done to either make us feel more confident before God or less confident in His eyes, we have made our actions be the definer of our relationship with God rather than His mercy and grace, rather than what Christ has done. I am no closer to God than I could ever be, because of what Jesus has done, I'm as close to him as I could get. I can't move away. I can't get closer. Why? Because Jesus has done it all. I need to rest in that. But often, we turn little things that we've done into distancing us or bringing us closer. Now this can happen with kind of the more obvious things. So how often do you pray, how often do you go to church, how often do you evangelize, how often do you care for the poor? we often think that alters our standing before God. But there's also less obvious ones that each one of us kind of subtly works into our life. Like I'm sure, I'm sure many of you have felt distance from the Lord because you're not organized enough. Because your life isn't put together enough. Because you watch too much Netflix. Or you don't have your kids involved in enough activities. Actually, I honestly, I wrote that line on like tuesday or something like that and i didn't even realize that night i was looking at my wife's instagram that seems kind of weird but i was anyways i saw a picture of one of my friends who's a pastor in the city and the picture was of of him coaching his son's baseball team and it just crushed me because he's got three kids very similar ages to my kids and we have not had our kids involved in activities for about a year and a half and i'm looking at this and i'm seeing him coaching his son and the next day i found myself praying for forgiveness and feeling distanced from god Because I know how many my kids are involved in enough activities. And then it dawned on me, I had just written the day before that we do this kind of thing and we shouldn't. But that's the thing, it's it's so deeply embedded into us. That we need to work in order to earn our way with God. In order to get closer to him or to not move further away. So it's about organization. Too much Netflix. Your kids aren't involved in enough activities. Maybe you shouldn't be a stay-at-home parent. Or maybe you should be a stay-at-home parent. Whatever it is. We kind of build these laws in our head. And we start to move away. But the problem is, it's not that being organized is bad. It's not that being disciplined and not watching Netflix is wrong or something like that. But rather that we treat these activities as if they are a means by which we can improve our identity. By which we can improve our standing before God. But you see, in all that we do, we are meant to remember constantly that our standing before God is by grace. And that's what the law was always to show us. Adam and Eve were in the image of God because God graciously made them that way. Israel was God's people because he graciously chose them and saved them. And we, brothers and sisters, you are God's child because Jesus has died and risen again. Because Jesus has formed you through his life, death, and resurrection. Because he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That is what God has always desired. Was it people dependent on him? This is what all of history was moving toward, was God graciously, mercifully forming a people for his own possession. A people who would believe that when I am poor in spirit, that's when I am blessed. Not when I feel like I'm accomplishing anything. But when I realize I can't, all I'm blessed at those times. That's when I know I need God. You see, that's what Christ has done for us through fulfilling the law and the prophets. He lives the righteous life we should have lived. He died the sinner's death we should have died and offers to us forgiveness, mercy, offers to us blessing of God, offers to us the gift of being the light of the world if we're willing to see that we need that, that we need him and not ourselves, then we can rest in his mercy. If we're willing to see that our standing before God is not because we earned it, it's not because we deserve it, it's not because we pray enough, we fast enough, we're organized enough for anything, it's because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, which means he graciously formed a people. But as we rest in that identity, as we rest in what Jesus has done, and this is the point that is what he says next, we need to realize that that places a call on our lives to embody a specific ethic, to embody a way of life. That's what I show you with this second point here. Because look, look again what Jesus says then, then in the rest of our passage, so 18 through 20. So these words seem pretty intense here, but they're really important to try and grasp because these words show that Jesus is not just saying that his words and acts of mercy are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, of what they were all about, but that the people he is saving are to actually look a specific way. The people that he are blessed, that rely upon God, are to embody that law in their life as well. In fact, with this last line here, where he says that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's basically showing us that it's possible for us to deny the mercy and grace of God by refusing to embody this way of life. Which can actually seem pretty confusing to us, because it can seem like he's actually saying you need to obey the law in order to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. So he's like contradicting what he said earlier. But to use the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what he is really saying is that the grace of God is not cheap grace. It's costly grace. The grace of God is a grace that places a call on our lives. It's a grace that purchases us for a purpose. It's a grace that not only saves us from something, but for something. And in reality, I don't really think this should be very surprising, especially with what we've been saying earlier. Because, like again, if we think back to the earlier times when God gave his people the law, he did it, after graciously forming them. In other words, he graciously formed his people and then gave them his word to follow. That's the pattern. That's what God always actually desired. That was a people who would embody, who would live according to his ways. And Jesus came to fulfill that. Jesus came to form a people for God through graciously forgiving them, but also sending them out to live as the light of the world, as the one who would live righteous lives, as the ones who would truly perform what the law was always seeking to shape the people into. And you see, that's the call then that's placed upon each one of us. In fact, Jesus is essentially saying that this is what grace is for. Have you ever asked that before? What is my salvation for? That's important to get. Because that's what Jesus is actually saying here. It can be possible that you don't enter the kingdom of heaven because you reject the grace because the grace has a purpose to it. If you don't want to live that life, you're denying that grace because it's given to you for a purpose. You can reject it then by refusing to win, to, to actually live that way. It's not cheap grace. It's not a get-of-the-jail-free so you can do whatever you want. God didn't save you so you could live the exact way our culture and world are forming us to live. He saved you so you could live in the way that he always desired for people to live. God has saved us. So that we can be the people God always desired to have in the world. People who did not just follow a bunch of rules to appear good like the scribes and the Pharisees did. But who legitimately lived in his image. Who actually imitated his ways. Who served him with their lives. Who relied upon him. Who sought justice. Who cared for others. Who forgave. Who were willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. That's what we're called to be. In fact, many have pointed out, a lot of scholars have pointed out that the rest of the sermon is basically an explanation of what Jesus means by this. When he says your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what Jesus explains, I'm not gonna talk that much about it because that's what you're gonna do in the next number of weeks. But what Jesus basically explains then is that to have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees is to have your whole life. Every single aspect needs to be given to the Lord. We can't just be those who don't murder who don't do the outward act of murder. We have to be those who seek to love and care for our neighbor and even seek reconciliation with them. It is not okay to not do that. We have to be those who don't just not commit adultery, but those who do not seek to lust after another man or woman. We can't be those who just like, well, I'm not going to have too much money, but those who are willing to give it away, who actually submit their entire lives to him. That's what Jesus is calling out. Those who would embody this entire way of life. Yes, we are to be those whose lives are not about wealth, but being better than others, but are secure in the Lord and what he's done for us so that our lives can be poured out for the sake of others. That's the kind of people we're to be. So let me ask you, covenant, is that the kind of people that we are? Are we those who actually entire lives have been submitted to the Lord and who are seeking that, who rest secure in the grace we've been given? Yes. But are so secure in that and in what the gospel gives to us that our lives are spent to serve him and serve others, even if it's at our own expense. Because we would actually say that Jesus perfectly lived this. That Jesus perfectly embodied the law and the prophets with his life. Not just with his words, but with his life. And what was his life shaped by? Obedience to God and service to others, even at his own expense. His life was shaped by the cross. And he is the one who then calls to us, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And so that's actually what we are called to do. To not just recognize the cross as the thing that gives us salvation, but the model for what that salvation looks like in our lives. The cross saves us perfectly, yes. But it also places a call on our lives to recognize that, that that's the good life. Is serving God, serving others, even at your own expense. That is the blessed life. Because the Christ of history, the Christ that we claim to follow, do not come to abolish the law the prophets but to fulfill. That's just not enough to merely believe in Jesus. True biblical faith is that which responds to Christ's saving work with work for God in the world, even if it's at our own expense. In fact, true biblical faith is recognizing that this is what we are saved for. Brothers and sisters, we cannot relax one of these words. We cannot relax this call because we follow Jesus Christ. We follow the one who went to the cross for us and called on us to follow him as well. And that's the kind of people he has formed. That's the kind of people we're to be. Those who are secure in our identity, rest in that identity, but realize that it places a call in our lives to embody that way of life as well. So my challenge for you throughout this week, really throughout really your life, is to constantly be asking, one, am I resting in Christ and what he has done? Or am I putting something else as kind of the standard I need to live up to? No, it's Jesus. Rest in that but realize that that place is a total call on your lives to give it all up for him. But it's worth it because he's given you everything through the cross. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have been saved. We have been formed as a new people. We've been formed, Lord by his life, death, and resurrection. May we rest secure in that. But Lord, may we also, remember that place is a call on our lives to embody what that means, to embody that way of life in all that we do. May we know this, may we live in light of it. I pray that as we go out today, God, we will remember this and be secure. In Jesus' name, amen.